The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning. Uh, we are very grateful to be here, and we, we want to say thank you to, to Jim and Celeste. They've been wonderful hosts. We always enjoy being with them. It's almost like coming home, in a way. Um, and we always feel blessed because to see uh, new people every time we come and also see a lot of good old friends. Maybe I should emphasize old, I don't know. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, it's a joy to be here. Now, as we were preparing, I thought of an event that happened just a few weeks ago, and I just want to ask, how many watched at least part of the Olympics? Okay, most of you did, I assume. It's interesting because uh, with the, in the TV, you know, we'd hear about these athletes who'd been dreaming of everything they'd done and, and how they, their dream was to be in the Olympics. They had set themselves a goal. Some of them, as they were children, they were dreaming about it. And you'd hear sometimes the parents were the biggest cheerleaders. Other times you'd hear, well, they would rather say, uh, it's okay to dream that, but why don't you do something reasonable? You know, uh, something that you could probably get to. Um, and I thought of that as I was, we were thinking about what we were talking about for today, because we, we asked ourselves the question, is it okay for us to have big goals for a church? Is it okay to really reach for the stars? Or is it better just kind of be there for one another when we're together as a church? And as, uh, as we thought about these things, you know, I mean, we, we grapple with these questions that we have in our context, our situation. I'm kind of going, sinking on me. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Okay. Lately, as we've been looking at these goals, these questions, and we, we've been working with them, we, we, we came on a passage in Philippians 2 uh, where we found some very inspiring words, some very practical words, where we find uh, words that we'd like to share with you. It's Paul's vision for the church, for the church family in, in Philippi, but not just for them. It's also for, I believe, us today, a worthy goal for any church. Paul's goal for them and now, and you see that in Philippians 2, is that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as stars in the universe holding forth the word of life. Now this is not a Paul's dream for individuals who are in the congregation and we say, okay, let's pick them out and everyone else can do their own thing. This is dream for the whole church to be a light to those who are badly in need of it, holding forth the word of light, that sounds so good. But what does it really mean? So how do we shine like stars in the universe as we hold out the words of life? Stars stand out in the universe because they're nothing like the darkness around them. When Jesus called his disciples, they were a bunch of lowlifes in the Jewish community. 
Peter told Jesus, go away from me, because even he knew that he was a sinful man. And his two buddies were a couple of hotheads. Among the others, there were people that were, or men that were money-hungry and rebels, know-it-alls, and at least one traitor. They looked a lot like the Jewish community around them. And the Jewish community throughout history sadly looked a whole lot like the crooked and perverse generations around them, even though they were God's chosen people. The outward trappings of their culture differed, but the inward workings of the heart, they were much the same. So what is it about uh, the followers of Jesus that should set them apart in the world around us? As Jesus was addressing his disciples for the last time before his death, he shares with them things that are weighing heaviest on his heart. I'd like to share one of those thoughts with you from John 13, verses 34 and 35. It says there, a new command I give you to love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. In other words, Jesus wants the disciples to stand out as his followers, and Paul wants the, wants the Philippians to shine like stars in the darkness by how they love each other, by how they treat each other, how they talk to each other, how they text each other. And because of how they love each other, when they hold out the words of life, it will have credibility for the world. Have you ever asked yourself why Jesus chose such a diverse group of people uh, to represent him? <clears throat> Maybe you asked this question a little bit closer to home, like why did God choose this diverse church that I'm a part of to be so different, so difficult. I know that I have asked that many times over the years in the church in Hildesheim. <laughs> a while back, I was talking to my sister, who is a very successful businesswoman, and we were talking about how her company tackles uh, difficult challenges. And she told me that when they have a complicated project that they have no clue how to approach, that they pull together the most diverse team they can come up with because that is the best way to create uh, unique ideas and wonderful strategies for accomplishing their goal. And I remember at that point thinking, ah, that did not originate in the business world. Jesus did this uh, when he pulled the 12 together and later the 70. And then in Acts 2, when he uh, brought the church together, the 3,000. And all of the church that Paul started and the others, the Philippian church also. And that is what Jesus is doing with our communities today here in, in the Springs. I almost said here in Hildesheim. Here in the Springs um, or back home in Hildesheim. We are a part of the greatest project the world has ever known. God himself set our goal and he's invited us to join him 
and be a part. He motivates us not with money or a job, but with love and life. And he calls us to be so much more than this world has to offer. He calls us to be otherworldly, to hold to values that are eternal, and in Jesus' words, to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Any of us who have truly ever tried to forgive somebody that hurt us deeply knows how difficult this is. Or when we faced painful opposition uh, and sought resolution, we know that on our own strength, this is almost impossible. One of the things I really like about the letter to the Philippians is that it was written to a church like mine, to people like me. Paul is writing to people that are in progress. In chapter 1, verse 6, he says that he is confident that the God who started a good work in these people will carry it on until it's complete. It is God's working in us that opens us up to the possibility of what Dallas Willard calls life on the highest plane. This is not some ideal completely separated from the reality that we live in. Paul is writing to a church where there's conflict. Even among sisters who have served together, they've served God together on Paul's side, and now they're at odds with each other. Does that sound familiar? He mentions the opposition and the suffering that they are experiencing, and he they're experiencing it from believers from within the church but also opposition from outside <clears throat> and he doesn't want them to become uh, discouraged or fearful does that ring a bell paul wants them to conduct themselves in these times in a manner that is worthy of the gospel i don't know about you but i find that really really difficult While we're thinking about this, let's, let's go back to the idea of the Olympics. Now, when people get this dream that they want to be an Olympic athlete, you know, they can have this dream and the desire all they want, but there are a few things you need to have to be able to do it. You know, think about it. Now, you can practice all you want, but if you try and try and try and never get to do the splits, you're not going to be an Olympic gymnast. That's just reality. You know? you got to have abilities, certain abilities as a condition to be able to do that. And, you know, that's what, that's what I really appreciate about the kingdom. You don't have to be, pass an aptitude test to be a child of God. You don't have to have certain abilities to be one of the haves in society to be his follower. Jesus accepts us as we are unconditionally, as we trust in him and put our faith in him. And after accepting us into his family, he doesn't just leave us to our own devices. And it's important to see, he doesn't just say, okay, you're a child of God. Great, glad to have you there. Here's a rule book. I'll see you at the end. Some people may get that idea. But that's not how it is. So now we're 
we'd, I'd like to look at something Paul does over and over again because we need these reminders. At the beginning of the chapter in, in verse 1, Maybe you're wondering, why'd we start in the middle and go back? Well, we just like doing things different, okay? So, so Paul says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and compassion, then complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love. You know, these words here are so very critical because what Cindy's talked about, in, in the end of chapter 1, Paul says, talks about opposition from outside, people who people who are making it difficult. Not just that they didn't want to hear the gospel, but they were actually actively opposing the Christians. And then you add to that the conflicts that she mentions, the problems that were in the church, opposition from the outside, conflict from the inside. How do we keep going in these surroundings? What keeps us from just bailing out? How can we possibly be light in a dark world in that situation? You know what Paul does here, he does over and over again. He calls us to look back at our motivation as we became Christians. Look at what he gives us in our walk. You know, look at this. Have you ever had any encouragement in Christ? Have you ever had times when Christ is where you fell, okay, you're walking with him, you say, okay, he's here, he's helping. Or you've read about this, this story about Jesus and it spoke to you in a special way and encouraged you. Have you ever had that? You know, these are a rhetorical question that Paul assumes that they will all say, yeah, sure. Have you ever, ever had, ever been comforted by his love for you? Have you ever heard the voice of the Father saying to you, you are my beloved child? Have you ever experienced the working of the Spirit in your life, the strength and wisdom and guidance that he gives? Have you ever felt his compassion and mercy? You know, in some ways... He's talking about our connection to God, but also he's talking about our connection to each other because God will often use his children to bring compassion and mercy to us. And that's God working just as well as if he spoke directly. You know, I think really uh, very fondly back a few years ago, or actually it's a number of years ago, uh, on a Sunday when we are... One of our kids was really struggling in college, and we had a long conversation on a, a phone conversation. And uh, on a Saturday evening and the next morning, I was telling the church we had to pray about this. And, and I, I was trying to t talk about it, and I got upset, and I, I would start crying. I couldn't continue. I just sat there, tears. I kind of got embarrassed. You, know, where else you, you don't want to cry, but you do. Um, and there was a little girl sitting there. She's 11 years old. She got up and hugged me right in the middle of everything. God's little angel. You know, that's, that's how God works. Again and again, you know, and, and these are things these people know, and again and again, Paul calls us to remember this, to, to really what matters. We get into these conflicts and struggles, and we're in the middle of them, and what Satan's trying to do is say, just concentrate on that. Think about how bad everyone is. And Paul's saying, no, wait a minute, step back and look, look at what God has done for you. He does it again and again. Let, let's look at Romans 5. He starts off Romans 5 by saying, we've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through Christ. We have access to his grace. We have this wonderful hope of God's glory. We have all of that. He said, okay, so you're having troubles, trials, tribulations? 
Well, God's working in that, and he's going to do something else, so you can be happy about that too. He calls them back to who they are and what they've received and what God gives them. Ephesians 3, it's a prayer that Paul, a beautiful prayer of Paul, and sometimes I think his prayers were kind of messages where he just say, I'm praying for you that this happens. He's trying to remind them it's not something they never knew. I don't believe that. But he says, I'm praying that you would grasp how this spirit is strengthening you, that you would grasp that Christ is dwelling in your hearts and how great this love is that he has for us which surpasses all understanding. Understanding that our God is able to do abundantly more than we can ask or think. Now he, he steps in back and says, Pray, I'm praying for you that you'll grasp this. And what's the next statement? Well, let's talk about how you're walking. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. Okay, we get, he combines these beautifully. Remember who you are. Remember what God's given you. Think about that and then pull that in to your life, daily living. One is connected to the other. We're not going to realize the living part without realizing going back again and again to who we are, what he's given us, what he wants for us. And what will what and there's another thing that will help this make this goal become more of a reality. Before Paul gets to what, or better said, who will make a difference in this process. He brings up one more area where Satan really tries to divide the Philippians. He uses their own self-will, or he brings that up, and he recognizes how that causes strife among them. And he warns them that their own selfish ambitions, their vain conceit, their selfish interests, that will be a problem. And I have to admit that my own selfish ambitions, uh, my own conceit, is a problem for us in our church. And I'm guessing that some of you can relate to that. In German, I think Don mentioned this last time we were here, but in German there is a phrase for this that we both really love. It's called der innere Schweinehund. It's your inner pig dog. And I think it's a beautiful description of what we all feel sometimes that goes on inside us. It's this battle um, of ugliness. Um, and I, I like having that picture in front of my mind um, to recognize uh, just what's going on in me. But Paul's solution to the inner pig dog is Christ. We should have the mind of Christ. His attitude should be our own. I want to emphasize two aspects that Paul mentions in the next verses um, that to me are so important in the attitude of Christ. One is his humility, and the other one is his obedience. If anyone ever had a right to walk into this world or into our communities and say, this is how things should be done, and this is how we're going to do it. It was Christ. He's God, right? He knows. 
But as we know, he does give clear direction, but he doesn't make us do it. He is humble enough to allow us to reject or accept his offer of life. And he allows us, when we accept it, to grow sometimes painfully slowly in our ability to understand the life he gives. And all the while, he's serving us, healing us, reordering our lives through the power of his spirit. Nowhere is this seen more beautifully, in my opinion, than in the three years of Jesus' ministry with his disciples. Now, I'm not trying to make Jesus over in my own image, um, but if we do not experience, uh, or I believe that Jesus experienced humanity just like we do. He got frustrated. He got discouraged and disappointed. Could it be that Jesus was asleep in that boat in a raging storm with weather-seasoned disciples that are scared to death, literally, uh, because he was so tired just because he lacked the sleep? Now, I believe that Jesus prayed many times through the night, and I'm sure that part of it was done out of his discipline because he wanted to live out of the fullness of, of Christ? But is it too far-fetched to think that there were nights that he spent in prayer simply because his heart was heavy, because he was concerned about his ministry and the people he was working with, the people that he loved, and where it was all going? And he just woke up at 2 o'clock, and he knew the night's over. And so he went to be with his father. And I would love to be a fly on the wall and listen to some of those prayers. Could it be that he, he got in the presence of God, he brought himself before God, and he said, if I have to listen to one more argument about who's the greatest, I'm going to explode. And did you hear my mother and my brothers today? They're wanting to have me committed. And Abba, sometimes the need, the pain that these people are feeling, it is so overwhelming. And you never wanted it to be this way. He carried those burdens, and it was not easy. I sincerely mean no disrespect, but if the Jesus we believe in is so distant and doesn't understand what we feel and experience, I don't believe he can be the high priest that we need. I find comfort in the words of Hebrews, uh, where it says that Jesus is a high priest who is able to sympathize with us in all of our weaknesses. And he was tempted in every way, the way I am, the way we are. But he did not sin. So I have to ask myself, where do I so often go wrong? I don't believe that the experience of frustration, disappointment, discouragement, and all these are my catch-all for a myriad of negative emotions that want to take us captive. What is crucial to living with the mind of Christ in this is what we do with that. 
And this is where the obedience comes in. What did that obedience look like? Well, what are my go-tos? What do I do when I'm feeling disappointed and frustrated and angry? How do I deal with my pain? How do I, or do I, choose to distract myself? Okay, Jesus didn't have Facebook or Pinterest, but I am sure that in the first century, there were lots of possibilities for distraction or comfort or drowning your sorrows. There were lots of ways to alleviate his pain in unhealthy ways, just like there are today. Jesus felt the pain of disagreement. He was probably the most misunderstood person that ever lived. And he had more differences of opinion where he was in the right, because he was always in the right, (laughs) than any of us, right? But he didn't sin. And I believe that this is where his obedience comes in. He accepted the limitations of his humanity, and he sought God in everything. He didn't try to live out of his own power, but lived a human life in the power of God. That's basically exactly exactly the opposite of what happened in the Garden of Eden. How comfortable are you with Jesus? Because he is God. How comfortable am I in his presence? Do the ways that I seek him stoke my desire for more? Do they cause me to want to create more opportunities to be with him? Do I consciously recognize and enjoy his presence in the normal activities of my day? And when I'm overwhelmed with life, where do I go? Do I seek him just because he's the one that can comfort me? When we sang the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, a few minutes ago, so many of those words, the writer of that song was comfortable with Jesus. He loved being with him. He, Jesus was his go-to or hers. I was so tickled to hear that Jackie Halstead was here recently and that she talked to you all on contemplative prayer, um, the listening side of prayer. One of her phrases in our spiritual direction training was wasting time with God. That was a completely new concept to me. I didn't know what to do with that to begin with. Um, But she talked about it over and over again, just relaxing, learning to relax in his presence, to enjoy being with him. That concept, more than anything, I, I believe, helped my faith go from my head to my heart. I'm not suggesting that we forget who we're dealing with, He is the God of the universe. But the way that I live in relationship with him will profoundly affect who I become. The difference between how a slave or a servant relates to his master, uh, or it's, excuse me, it's the difference between how 
a slave or a servant relates to his or her master and how a beloved child lives in relationship with their father. The child wants nothing more than to be like mom or dad. You know, when we uh, get hear this, you know, have the mind of Christ, it's so good to, he- to see these words in Hebrews because we know we're far away from it, right? Uh, and the problem that we have when we're, we're working on, you know, as growing as a Christian is that we sometimes get into what I call the shoulda, coulda, woulda mode. You ever been in that? You know, where you say, oh, man, I could have helped that lady if I'd have just taken the time, you know, or I should have said something and I didn't. Or I shouldn't have said something that I did. And, and we, we get into this, you know, where we, we really see all our faults. And, and if, we, if we stay in it then, what happens? Well, uh, we either have a guilty conscience, we feel really guilty about it, or maybe we feel inadequate to do it. And the thing we need to remember is that that's not Christ's intention when he invites us to life with him. You know, he, he didn't come and say, I've come to give you guilt and inadequacy. Right? No. What did he say? I've come to give you life and give it abundantly. And so we need to remember that. Remember his grace. And Paul wants that abundant life for the Philippians. And for us all too. And so after this wonderful song that we read, we didn't read it, but you can read it in, in the verses 6 through 11, then he comes to something that is very practical in verses 12 and 13 in Philippians 2. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is really a beautiful exhortation, but I must say over the years that I've heard it often very badly misunderstood or misused. And so, just so that we're all on the same page here, uh, a couple short statements. Now, Paul is not saying, let me emphasize this, he is not saying that we have to work and work and work and then stand before God with fear and trembling. Maybe he'll let us in and then we have our salvation. That's not him. God has given us salvation through our faith in Christ. The fear and trembling here has to do with the realization. You know, the the God of the universe, the creator of all that is, the king of kings, the all-powerful, is offering us childhood. I want to be your father. There's this awe of saying, wow, I get to be part of it. We can't lose that. Sometimes we get into this problem that, we, that God becomes too familiar. And we need to have that awe of saying, the, the God who controls everything that we can see and not see is in us and with us and interested in us and, and saves us. Through Christ, we have this awesome salvation. What do we do? Paul says, work it out. Well, when I was reading this passage a few years ago, it was, it was fitting because I had just bought something. You know, we have a furniture store in uh, Germany. We call it Ikea. Now, I know in America they call it Ikea. 
but I've lived in Germany too long, so I'm just going to call it Ikea, okay? <clears throat> when you go there, you see these beautiful, like a cabinet, or maybe you see a closet or something. And so we, well, we've been there and bought a closet. Because in Germany, you don't have walk-in closet. You build your own in your living room. And so we went and got one, but we took it home. And it didn't look anything like what was at the store. It had like six boxes. And so you had to kind of get out the directions and figure it out and put it together. And that's kind of how salvation is. God has given it to you. It's yours. I mean, the, the, we, bought the, the cat, we bought the closet. It was ours. We just had to figure out how to put it together. And God's saying, well, let's work it out in your own life because every life is individual and unique. And we need to work out with him, walking with him, what it means in life. So when Paul says, work out your salvation, it means you've got it already, now work it out. And while you're doing that, God is working in us. He says, too, that we work out as God is working in. He's working in our will. Sometimes when life gets tough, when, when things are going tough and you just really get to the point where you don't really want to do all this, sometimes the best prayer my wife has said is, Lord, right now I don't really want this. I really don't want to walk this way. I don't want to forgive. But I want to want it. Just be honest and say, I want to get there. I'm not there yet. That's a very honest prayer, and I believe God honors it. Because we need to remember in all this, it's a great goal we have. Life on a higher plane, as Willard calls it. To be lights in a dark world. And we've been given so much to, to help make it happen. His spirit in us, his love comforting us the wonderful hope of his glory to come, a fellowship where we can do it together with our Lord Jesus Christ. So our statement to you is, let's all work out what he's working in.